Romans chapter 6. I want to pick up where we left off. At, at a couple weeks ago, we saw at the beginning of Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul, after he had explained the glorious nature of the grace of God, the, the freeness of the gift of grace, he faces a, a question, really an accusation. And it goes something like this, well, if, if this grace is so free and it's so good, Paul, aren't you really encouraging people to sin? I mean, shouldn't we therefore continue to sin so that grace might increase, so that grace might abound? And Paul's explicit response to that is certainly not, by no means, he says in chapter 6, verse 2. And what he's doing here is he is addressing uh, the legalist who has really posed this question, the the Jewish legalist who's offended that Paul has stripped away any sense of obedience to the law as a necessary prerequisite for being made right with God. He's offended by that because he wants to uphold the law. And he wrongly believes that somehow if you obey the law, you can make yourself right with God. And so he poses this kind of pendulum swing kind of perspective to what's called antinomianism. Aren't you encouraging antinomianism simply means this, nomos is the Greek word for law, anti-law. Aren't you encouraging people just to say, we don't need to worry about the law. We don't need to obey God because his grace is so good. And in one swift movement, Paul is addressing both the legalist and the antinomian. And he's saying, in effect, that if you understand the gospel, if you understand your relationship to Jesus Christ, then you understand that victory has already been accomplished at the cross, and you participated in that victory. You are united to Christ in this beautiful, supernatural, mysterious, and mystical union with Jesus Christ. When he died, you died. And when he rose, you rose to newness of life. And if you understand that you participated in that act on the cross, you have now been given new power because you are under a new authority and you have been given a new ability to fight sin. You understand that the victory over sin that was inevitable in Jesus Christ is now a victory over sin that is doable in your life. In Christ, we have died to sin, and we have been given a newness of life. That's what we looked at the last time we were in Romans chapter 6. But here, right now, in these verses, verses 11 through 14, Paul's going to pick up his argument, and he's going to shift gears a little bit. He tells us that not only is victory over sin inevitable, it is actually doable in our life. And this is such an important point for us because so many of us feel weary in the battle against sin. So many of us, even as Christians, feel hopeless in the battle against sin. We feel defeated and discouraged. We feel like we're never going to get a grip on certain sins in our life, that we're always going to be plagued. It's always going to feel like we're crushed by sin. And Paul wants to reassure us this morning as God's children. He wants to spur us on in the battle against sin. He wants to call us to not throw the the towel in, to keep on charging forward, to pick up your weapons again, and to go to battle against sin. He wants to remind us that victory over sin is indeed doable. Look at how he frames this for us, beginning in verse 11. 
He says this, more than that, oh, excuse me, I'm looking at verse, or chapter 5 there, uh, verse 11, or chapter 11 and verse chapter 6. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace." Paul transitions here very intentionally, and and he moves us from 1 through 10, verses 1 through 10, from the indicatives. Now, the indicatives are statements of fact. They're statements of truth. They are realities we must understand and embrace and know, as he he pointed to us in in that passage just a couple weeks ago. But he shifts now in, in the Greek language to the imperative mode. The verbs here are actually imperatives. They're describing now what we must do. So he moves from what is true to now, now based on those truths, what we must do as a result. We looked at it like this last time, this logical order that Paul always follows, which is crucial, by the way, to understand. Behavior follows belief. Living follows learning. Duty follows doctrine. According to the Bible, we see this as well, that grace is opposed to earning, it's not opposed to effort. It's a really important point. Grace is opposed to earning a status with God. It is not opposed to exerting effort, in fact, extreme effort in the Christian life, fueled by the very power of God that resides within us. And so Paul is going to spur us on with this gospel-fueled effort this morning. Here I want to lay out a practical pathway for ongoing victory over sin. And here's what we we see first, that victory over sin is doable when you refocus your gaze to the gospel. Victory over sin is doable when you refocus your gaze to the gospel. Look at verse 11. This is the, the first command he gives. He says, so you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This idea of consider yourselves, that's the command. It means this, to count yourself, to reckon yourself. It's actually one of the most important words in the book of Romans. Paul uses this word 19 times, and if we we don't understand what this word means, we won't understand the letter of Romans. This word is a commercial term, which means to impute to one's account. The idea is this, that we are to reflect on our position in Christ. We're to refocus on our position in Christ You see, the starting point of fighting sin isn't doing something, per se, but believing something. Now, obviously, that is doing something. Believing something is, believe it or not, doing something. But not in the sense that we often mean, especially when it comes to to fighting sin. I'll often hear people ask me questions like this in their struggle with sin. I'm I'm really struggling with sin. Can, Can you just, I need some help. Can you just tell me what to do? And what they mean is, can you just tell me the one or two practical tips you have so I can kind of quickly fix this area of my life? And Paul says there are no quick fixes when it comes to our battle against sin. 
In fact, the first way we fix that, the first way we fight that is by pausing and slowing ourselves down and and not trying to muscle our way through it. It is to pause and reflect and to simmer and to soak in the beautiful, majestic, life-giving power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We refocus the eyes of our heart By turning our gaze, listen, this is really important, by turning our gaze away from sin and putting our eyes back on our Savior, in turning our gaze, listen, away from our circumstances and putting them back on the cross, this is essential if you're going to find any kind of lasting victory over sin in your life. We look at the cross we consider what Jesus has done there, and we, we look back and we see that he died our death. He rose in our place victorious over sin and death, and we look at the cross and we remind ourselves that not only did he do that, but he did that for me. I was in him when he died on the cross. And as a result of that, it changes the way I need to look at myself. I mentioned this a few weeks back, but Robert Murray McShane says it so helpfully. He says, for every, every look at sin or self, take 10 looks at Jesus. That is so, so important. We refocus, by the way, on two things in particular. Do you notice how he says it here? We focus on these two realities. One, that we are dead to sin. Two, that we are alive to God. That is who we are. And by the way, this isn't just make-believe. It's not some fantasy or, or some kind of figment of our imagination. We're not pretending that our old self has died. We are consciously choosing to realize and remember that our former self did die with Christ. Jesus put our old self to death. Its career is over. Now, one of the reasons this is so necessary for us to hear again and again is because we are so prone and tempted to define ourselves or redefine ourselves by our sin. We do this all the time. But we define ourselves by our sin. We, we, we convince ourselves that we are what we do. I am my sin. I am my struggle. I am my circumstances. And because of all that, I'm a failure, I'm pathetic, I'm hopeless. It's just who I am. It's who I'm always going to be. She sin is a, a master of identity theft. And Satan is the father of lies. And just as in the garden, Satan is constantly trying to use sin to steal and distort your identity, to convince you that you're not who God says you are. You're what sin says you are. You're what your circumstances say you are. You're what the world says you are. And God keeps calling back to us and says, no, 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 you are who I say you are. We need to learn to call sin, sin. We can't make excuses for our sin. We can't uh, trivialize our sin. We need to call our sins out for what they are. They are blatant sins. They are rebellion against God. They are a de-godding of God. They are a choosing to worship the creation rather than the creator. That's what sin is. They're not simply addictions. They're not simply failures. 
They're not simply struggles. They are sin. But in doing that, let me remind you that we also need to call ourselves what God calls us. You're not your sins anymore. Which is why Paul would say in 2 Corinthians that such were some of you. You used to be defined by your sins, but now you're not. The gospel has, has changed you. And now, now you are someone different in Christ. We refocus our hearts and minds on these truths, that the sweet soul healing and restoring truths of the gospel. We look back at the gospel and the cross, and we, we remind ourselves, listen, that we aren't our sins. Those sins have been paid for. The wrath of God has been satisfied. The demands of the law have been completely accomplished. And when we do, we should want to fight now with our sin more than ever before. And we should want to have nothing to do with our sin. The longer we gaze at the cross of Jesus Christ, the more heinous our sin looks to us and the more hatred we have in our hearts towards it and the more fight and vigor and zeal we have in going to battle against it. You see, the major secret, listen, Christian, listen, loved one, the major secret and key to holy living is about winning the battle in the mind. That's it. That's the key. It's not the only thing, but it is the key. It is knowing that we have been crucified with Christ, baptized into his death and resurrection. And in considering that in Christ we are dead to sin, we are alive to God and can walk in newness of life. We must walk in newness of life. You say, what, what do I do? How do I do this? Listen, here is, it's so simple. It's so simple. Here's what you do. You preach this to yourself every morning. I am dead to sin and alive to Christ. You wake up and you praise God and you say it aloud. You declare it because, listen, not to make it true because it is true. I'm dead to sin and alive. In the moment of temptation, listen, the moment you feel a pull in your heart towards sin, the moment you feel those passions kind of rising up within you, you declare the truth of the gospel to your heart. And you say, Jesus died for my sins. I no longer have to live in them. I am alive in Christ Jesus. And after, listen, this is so, after you have failed, after you've fallen, after you have sinned again, listen, you quickly preach the gospel to your heart. You remind yourself that's not who you are. I am dead to my sin. I'm alive to Christ. Grace has covered that. And you stand back up on your feet in the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ and you begin to walk afresh in newness of life. But be prepared. Be prepared for the thoughts and temptations that will continue to come. They're going to continue to come. You're going to get pummeled. Uh, the, the, the arrows of the evil one are relentless. And when they do come, after we refocus our gaze to the gospel, listen, here's what we must do secondly. We must choose to rebel against the tyranny of sin. We must choose to rebel against the tyranny of sin, the oppressive rulership of sin. It's another command here in verse 12. Let not, notice it's in the negative, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. You sense even in hearing that, don't you, that the tyranny, the oppressive nature of sin, the, 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 the lingering power that remains, that it wants to make you obey its passions. It's trying to exercise a degree of control over your life. And 
And the command here is simply this, don't do it. You've looked at the gospel, now when you look back at your sin and you see the temptation in front of you, here's the command, don't do it. Stop doing this. This is what's so critical to understand. Sin's authority, as we saw a couple weeks ago, has been broken, and its power has been greatly diminished. But, listen, listen, Christian, its presence is still very real. We all know this experientially, don't we? If you can make it through a day without sinning, you're in heaven. Its presence is still so real in our lives. It can still continue to have such a grip and hold on our hearts. But now, Christian, listen, it's trying to operate outside of its sphere of authority. It's trying to command what it's, what it's not its to command. The Bible says that in Christ we have been transferred out of the domain of darkness, out of the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of His beloved Son. There has been a transition that's taken place in the life of a believer. We're no longer under the power of sin, under the domain of sin, under the domain of darkness. We're in the kingdom of His beloved Son, where there is light and life. Yet sin strives to regain great authority and power in our lives. It calls us constantly to give in. When Paul says here um, that our mortal bodies, when he uses that language, uh, don't let it rain in your mortal body, he's referring to our our physical body here. But but let me kind of frame it like this. Um, He's talking about the passions that are part and parcel of being in a human physical body, in a fallen world with a fallen physical body. Now, not all the desires of the body, of the flesh, so to speak, are evil, but sin can use our body as a foothold through which to grip and govern us in some degree. So Paul actually calls us here to rise up in rebellion against the oppressive power of sin. You see, rebellion is a strong word, Ian. I say, yes, it absolutely is. You see, though sin and Satan are defeated foes, Satan is a toothless lion. It is a dangerous thing to underestimate. Let me just, I need to say this as clearly as possible. It is a dangerous thing to underestimate the remaining power of sin and Satan. Though it is not what it once was, it is not inconsequential. It's a dangerous thing, by the way, as well, to underestimate the inherent weakness of our flesh. J.C. Ryle, a great pastor, in his book, Holiness, which is one of the the books I read early on in my um, Christian life that really radically changed my own life, I commend it to you. He says this. He says, the life of a believer is a life of victory and not of failure. 
But the very struggles which go on within his bosom, he's talking now about the flesh, he's talking about the mortal bodies, the fight that he finds it needful to fight daily, the watchful jealousy which he is obliged to exercise over his inner man, the contrast between the flesh and the spirit, the inward groanings which no one knows but he who has experienced them all. All those groanings, listen, all this testify to the same great truth, all show the enormous power and vitality of sin. Mighty indeed must that foe be who, who even when crucified is still alive. We rebel, listen, and revolt. We rebel and revolt against it in the name of our rightful ruler, God. And we do this against sin's usurping rule. And just notice that sin is something that is desirable. You say, why, why, do we, why do we keep doing this? Why do we keep gravitating back to sin? Do you notice it's called passions for a reason? Because sin is desirable to our flesh. It's pleasing in the moment. It's satisfying in a temporal sense, but in a very real sense. If it wasn't, we wouldn't do it. It awakens passions within us. We've been trained to obey our passions, and as Christians, we, we feel those passions, and when we're tempted to sin, we need to understand what's taking place. But you see, some of us get so discouraged when we feel the temptation of sin, and we, we even kind of are, are losing the battle in some areas of our lives. You know, we, we begin to ask this kind of a question, maybe I'm not even alive to Christ after all. But I just, I just want to affirm for some of you who really struggle with discouragement and despair when it comes to battling sin in your life. Listen, real Christians feel real passion for sin. Real Christians feel real passion for sin. When passion for sin goes away from your life, you won't be here. Okay? We are going to fight the passions against sin and for sin every single day day of our lives until Jesus returns to take us safely home. And then and only then, listen, this is one of the, one of the best parts about heaven. Listen, the best part is about being in the presence of, of God, okay? A- amen? The best part about heaven is you get God. You get the presence of God. But arguably, the second best part of heaven is you will never struggle with another passion or desire or thought of sin forever and ever and ever. Never once will it cross your mind. But until that day comes, we go to war. And we believe because of the power of the gospel that victory over sin is doable. See, how do I do this? Let me give you one practical way to rebel against the tyranny of sin. Sin's like a taskmaster that's trying to demand you do something. It's like, hey, stay here, do this. And you, according to the gospel, and because of the Spirit of God within you, have every right to look at that tyranny, that oppressive ruler, and say, no, I'm not going to do what you're asking me to do. In fact, I'm not even going to stay here. Let me encourage you. One of the best things you can learn to do in your life when you're tempted with sin is this, the simple word, listen, flee. Flee. I never understand. I don't understand this in my own life. How somehow times, you, you, if you're with me, just kind of like nod your head in this. Okay, listen. I don't understand how sometimes in my life I feel like I'm stronger than I am. I feel like I can place myself within range of temptation and just choose to constantly withstand it. Listen, that is a foolish thing to do. 
Sometimes it's unavoidable. You're not going to be able to flee the way you want. But listen, most of the time, Christian, you can get yourself away, listen, from the thing that is enticing you to sin, the trigger towards sin and temptation. If possible, remove the source of temptation from your life. This is basic fighting sin. Fighting sin 101. Run. Don't feed the sin. The most obvious illustration of this is, is Paul tells Timothy, like, flee sexual immorality. Like Joseph, right? Tempted, yet he runs. He leaves his coat behind. He gets out of Dodge. He just leaves. He gets as far away as he can. You say, why did he do that? Here's why. Because he knew, he knew, listen, in his weakest moments, he could be prone to give in and do something he would greatly regret. We need to live like this too in our lives. And sexual sin, by the way, is one of the most easy illustrations of this. Jesus talked about this in Matthew chapter 5. Take drastic measures. Be willing to cut off your hand, to gouge out your eye. Like, not really, right? Metaphorically speaking. Go to drastic measures. Do whatever you need to do. Like some, of, some of you are like, like well, I, I really need a smartphone. Get a flip phone. People survived a long time without a smartphone. I just, I don't understand how we can think that we, we are, we're, we're, we're wiser, we're stronger, we're better than, than those who have gone before us. Now listen, let me just hasten to add this. Moral fences and protective measures, they're not the ultimate answer, okay? But they're part of the solution. If your struggle is with lust, you need to Get away quick. You need to flee. You need to cut those things out of your life that entice you. If your struggle was with alcohol, then you need to get that far away from you. Don't, don't convince yourself that you can only have one drink if, if the pattern of your life and the history of your life proves otherwise. Cut it off. Get it out of your life. Don't go back. That's not legalism, church. That's wisdom. If your problem is with anger, you have to flee those things that make you angry. Stop watching so much news. Right? And I hate to say this to you parents, but you can't get rid of your kids. Hey, I'm sorry. That's not what I mean by flee. Flee anger, okay? Besides, they're not the source of your anger. Some of you are like, you don't know my kids. Kids, you're awesome. Mommy and daddy love you. If your sin struggle is covetousness and, and discontentment or envy, listen, cut out social media, right? Stop going on Instagram and looking at what everybody else is doing and everything that you want to do. You see what I mean? These are the things. Again, none of these, these things aren't necessarily bad or sinful, but if you realize you have a struggle, go for the thing that you know is enticing that struggle and simply get rid of it. Cut it out. Do the hard thing. And watch, watch how your life begins to flourish because you're not willingly exposing yourself to those things that produce temptation and then ultimately lead to sin in your life. Every time we rebel against the tyranny of sin, we're declaring, listen, we're declaring, I am dead to that. Christ paid for that. He hung on the cross for that. He bled for that. He ransomed me from that. I am alive in Christ and I don't have to obey you anymore. You're not my master. You don't own me. I was bought with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. But here's the key. I'm going to listen carefully, because this is where so many Christians miss the mark. And they default back quickly into their past sins. Victory over sin is doable when you do this. Thirdly, listen, replace your allegiance to sin with allegiance to God. 
replace, that's the key word, replace your allegiance to sin with allegiance to God. Notice that Paul, in verse 13, he presents the not this, but this, the negative, then the positive. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but in contrast, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Don't offer the members of your body as instruments of wickedness. Again, if you pick up on the the analogy that Paul is using here, the metaphor of the body here, our mortal bodies, he's simply extending that imagery here. And he's saying, like, look at your body. Look at your body. You can't use them as instruments or tools or or vessels or implements to to pursue things that are unholy and ungodly. And here's what he's intending to convey here. We can get kind of trapped maybe in a wooden literalism as we we think about this. Paul is talking here about all of you, okay? All all of ourselves, holistically. When he says don't present your members, what he means is this. Take your life, take everything that you're made up of, your hands, your feet, your eyes, your ears, your mind, all of your faculties, all that you are, and use them the way God has created them to be used, not for unrighteousness, but for righteousness. Every part of you has been designed by God to bring glory to Him. And we can choose to use what God has given us for evil or for righteousness. And I just want you to notice here that the key word again is replace. This is a simple principle, yet it is pivotal in understanding how you will grow in righteousness and holiness. It's not just about what you stop doing. That's what a lot of Christians do. I just, I'll stop the sin. It is equally about what you start doing. In fact, Paul here uses two different verb tenses to help us understand this shift that must take, must take place. He says, first, do not present your members, and the verb tense there is this kind of ongoing practice. Don't keep doing this. And then when he shifts gears, he says, but present yourselves, he, he shifts the verb tense. The verb, in, in English, you can't see. They look, they look like they're identical, but the verb tense actually indicates that what Paul is calling for is this immediate, decisive act of commitment on our part. It's like driving a stake into the ground. It's a commitment to someone or something else. C.S. Lewis wrote this helpful sentence. Listen to what he says. He says, God cannot bless us until he has us. When we try to keep within us an area that is our own, we try to keep an area of death. Therefore, in love, he, speaking of God, claims all. There's no bargaining with him. God's not as interested in demanding all of our time and all of our attention, he is interested in demanding all of ourselves. This is the call of the gospel. It is to surrender all of yourself and day by day, pick up your cross. Day by day, surrender yourself. Moment by moment, surrender all of yourself. Submit yourself again to him. Our bodies and its members, its faculties are intended to be used as instruments or weapons of righteousness. 
And yet we often revert back to allegiance to sin. Why? Because we often feel like sin is going to make our lives better. But it doesn't. As C.S. Lewis said, it, it, it destroys, it empties, it wounds. It, it's like going back to death. It's like saying we enjoy death because that's what sin does. It destroys us over and over. We cultivate death every time we turn back to sin and we align ourselves and commit ourselves to sinful practices. And we keep doing that because we often feel like obedience brings death. I can't, I, can't, I can't do this. I can't do what God's calling me to do in this area of my life. That's, that's no fun. That's too hard. I, I want to enjoy my life, you know. But the Bible says that obedience always leads to true joy and true life. Always. See, rather than allegiance to sin, we turn and offer allegiance to God. We must choose to replace the vices of the old man with the virtues of the new. And there is, by the way, an opposite or counter attitude or behavior for every sin we are tempted to commit. For every sin you struggle with, there is a counter piece to that that you must learn to put on. So you've got to be able to both identify the sin, the vice, and identify the virtue, the Christ-like attitude or behavior. By the way, the New Testament does this for us over and over again. Let me just give you a couple quick examples. Ephesians chapter 4 is the classic. You can jot this down. Ephesians 4, verse 17. For example, um, we must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And then he says uh, to put off our old self, in verse 22, which belongs to our former manner of life and is corrupt through its deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And then listen to this, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And then he gives this list. He says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. All right? So you don't just stop lying. You start speaking the truth. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Well, what is he saying there? Don't be a person who walks around with anger and bitterness in your heart. Go to the person and extend forgiveness. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Resolve the issue. Let the thief no longer steal, listen to this, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, so that he may give something to share, have something to share with someone in need. See that? Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. In Colossians 3, parallel passage, he says the same thing. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he goes on and lists these things, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And, and he goes on. And then he says this, and having put on the new self, which is being renewed after, in knowledge after the image of its creator... He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Listen to these attitudes, okay? Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Put on love. This must be a deliberate and decisive commitment. Allegiance to God must replace our allegiance to sin. Now, there are some in here who are perhaps trying to gain victory over sin for the simple purpose of trying to quiet their soul and find some kind of relief from the torment of their conscience. But in doing so, they actually fail to deal with the root cause of sin. 
There are many people with this kind of mindset who are actually prevented from coming to God and they actually forfeit their souls for all of eternity because they are trying to accomplish victory over sin in their own strength instead of allowing the conviction they feel about the sin that they're committing to drive them to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is a difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow leads to remorse Godly sorrow leads to repentance, true repentance. What you need, if you're in here today just trying to figure out how to deal with the the, the conscience that is constantly tormenting you, listen, you need to learn to run to the cross of Jesus Christ. What you need is not some kind of a, a personal reformation. You need a gospel transformation. You need God to meet you where you are and to say, hey, you can't fix yourself, but here's the good news. I came to fix you. I came to forgive all of your sins. I came to wipe away all of your guilt. I came to take your sin and cast it as far as the east is from the west. I came and I paid the price for your sin. I suffered the wrath of God on your behalf. I paid the debt for you. And you can't work to pay that off because I have worked to pay it off in full. You need to turn to Christ. You need to let him transform your life. You need to declare today your allegiance to him. By faith, believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And then you need to daily die to yourself, decisively committing yourself to the Lord. And when you do, victory over sin isn't a burdensome attempt to fix yourself, but a joyful pursuit in drawing near to the Lord and experiencing both his pleasure and his power. You get this. You get this, okay? If you get the gospel, here's what you get today. And some of us need to be pulled back into this because even as Christians, we've gotten to this legalistic mindset that we are the ones responsible of making ourselves right with God and forgetting that only he made us right with himself. You see this finally. Listen, that victory over sin is doable when you rest in God's abundant grace. When you rest in God's abundant grace. And this final verse isn't a command And it kind of ties up this passage in a neat little bow. He reminds us of what is true for us in Christ. Listen to what he says. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. He's he's expressing here in this moment, listen, assurance for our, our souls, our weary souls. He's extending to us a promise Sin will have no dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Sin will not be your master. This is the ultimate secret of freedom from sin. Law and grace are the opposing principles of the old man and the new man. To be under law is to ultimately accept the obligation to keep its commands, to come then under its curse and its condemnation. You see, to be under law is to stand in this place where you have to keep working and keep working in order to make yourself right with God. And Paul comes along and says, hallelujah, Christian, you are no longer under law. That's not your position before God, for you are under grace. 
To be under grace is to acknowledge our dependence on the work of Christ for salvation, to be justified rather than condemned, and to be set free. If we are freed from condemnation, we are free to resist sin's usurped power and new, with new strength and boldness in Christ. I said at the beginning, I'll say it again, grace is opposed to earning. It's not opposed to effort. So while it's hard work gaining victory over sin, and believe me, it is, we rest. Listen, in the midst of this battle, we rest. While we fight, we rest. While we struggle with all his strength within us, we rest at the same time, not after. We rest in the moment, knowing this, listen, that we are safe and secure, and our salvation is not dependent upon us overcoming this moment and overcoming this sin. We are safe and secure because we have already been rescued and redeemed in the victory of the cross of Jesus Christ. Your sin has not, listen, it has not lost or diminished His grace in the slightest. It has not removed His love for you nor altered it in any way. You are no less acceptable to Him now, if you're in Christ, listen, than the day He saved you. Because you've never been loved, accepted, or saved by anything you ever did. It's only and always been because of His grace. That's it. Sometimes we fall back into sin, old sin, new sin, entangling sin. It trips us up, it slows us down, it weighs us down. And we default to this legalistic way of thinking. We try to be better, we try to assuage our guilty conscience, we try to make ourselves acceptable before God, we try to erase our shame by doing good things or better things or helpful things. But the truth is, none of those things work to actually, listen, assuage our conscience And what we need to hear again and again is the Father whispering to our hearts, listen, Christian, listen, what we need to hear over and over again is God the Father whispering to you, I love you. You are my child. I died for you. You are precious to me. I have paid the price in full. We need to hear the Spirit speak tenderly to our tired and weary souls. Come to me. Listen, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my burdens are light and my yoke is easy. Victory over sin is doable. So we must refocus our gaze to the gospel. We must rebel against the tyranny of sin. We must replace our allegiance to sin with allegiance to God. And at the end of the day, we must learn to rest in God's abundant grace that is ours freely in Christ Jesus. For he worked on our behalf and he earned what we could not. And because he died, we died. And because he lives, we live. And when we celebrate the Lord's Supper as we do today together, we celebrate the victory over sin that he accomplished for us.